live now. This this should be fun. So this right. is going to be a, a quick podcast, video cast. A little test of something a, a little, to come. A little test of something to come. Yeah. So this is will be a special version of my podcast, and I'm Joe Alcock, uh, emergency physician at the University of New Mexico. We have Kate Rusk, yep. evolutionary anthropologist and media podcasting, video casting mogul. That's right. To be. <laughs> um, so, Kate, when are we going to have the, the, the live intro band? Oh, intro band? Yeah, the oh, music. Oh, my and... gosh. How about when I get enough money to have a full streaming studio that I don't also have to live in? Hmm. Okay. That would be good. But I, know, I, know, I, know, I know some musicians. <laughs> but I'm into that. Okay. All yeah, right. let's do it. So this will be a special edition of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. And I have put several episodes of the Evolution Medicine Podcast on various streaming platforms, uh, so I'd recommend you check that out. But this will be a short one, and today we're going to talk a little bit about sepsis, yep. a little bit about sick kids, and about our favorite intervention, which is what we love to do in hospitals and in the emergency room, and that is to give people IV fluids. So I've had a lot of IV fluids. You've had them. Yep. So I wonder if people just automatically know what this is, but if you can just picture in your mind's eye Grey's Anatomy or any kind of paramedic TV show, when the paramedics bring in somebody in, they've got that IV usually stuck right here in their arm. Yep. There's the little clear tubing that goes up, and invariably, there's going to be that bag of uh, IV fluid, and it's normally normal saline, so that's, that's what it typically is, and normal saline is supposed to mimic the physiology of the, of the blood and have that uh, essentially a, we'll call, we'll call it a normal amount of sodium and chloride. And that in itself, I mean, you can get super deep into the weeds of, you know, crystalloid is what they call normal saline and fluid therapy. Um, I don't want to get too deep into it, but suffice to say that bag usually contains water, H2O, plus a little bit of sodium, plus a little chloride. And there's other varieties of fluids you can get that have some dextrose in them sometimes, so some sugar water. But typically, if you're coming in and you've just been picked up because your roommate called 911 and you're lying on the floor and your blood pressure is low and you're sick, then they're going to hang a, a bag of IV fluid. And we love to do this. I mean, paramedics love to do it. We, all, we feel like we're doing something special when we give IV fluids. Yeah, for real. It's just yeah. the immediate, okay, yeah. I am helping this person. Right. And so I remember back when I was, when I was training and I was a, a medical student, they gave me some fake patient I was supposed to take care of, and it was a heart attack patient. And I said, well, we need to start an IV and we need to give that patient fluids. And, of course, it was the wrong thing to do, and but it just seemed like we did it for everybody. Yeah. I mean, every single time I've ever gone into the ER, that's, like, the first thing that they do. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's one of these things. And so we were talking a little bit earlier about how, you know, we doctors like to think of ourselves as being scientists. And we like to think about the things that we do as being evidence-based. And we make fun of the other practitioners that are not MDs, you know, maybe naturopaths or homeotherapists or crystal therapists and being, oh, those, those people aren't scientists, but we're scientists and we know what we're doing. Right. Right. But it turns out that maybe we don't really know what we're doing. <laughs> and a lot of things that we do have not been tested very well. And giving people normal saline when they're sick with sepsis is one of those things. So let's just talk really briefly about what sepsis is. Sepsis is an overwhelming infection, a bloodstream infection that can start in the urinary tract or in your lungs or even in your skin. And we see a lot of it. We see uh, probably certainly hundreds of patients, if not thousands over the year, at our wow. local hospital that come in septic. 
And How common is it for a, a localized infection to become septic, like a, a more systemic one? Great question. Thanks. Yeah. So if you get a scratch and you get a little wound on your arm and you get a little wound infection, chances are it's going to go away without you becoming septic. Sure. And that's because you have an immune system. Right. And your little white cells are going to be mobilized to the site. They're going to gobble up bacteria. They're going to cause all the hallmarks of inflammation, the redness, the pain, the swelling. And all those things actually help contain that infection to a little localized environment so you don't become sick over your entire body. But some proportion of people will get septic, and sometimes we never even figure out what the source is. And that mm, can be a problem. Okay. Hmm. But I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if anybody does. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's no real way to test that, Yeah, I suppose. So like a lot of things, what we see in the hospital and what gets admitted to the ICU is the tip of the iceberg. And there's lots of people that, that have something which is subsepsis. They don't quite get all this overwhelming thing. Huh. But sepsis is this bloodstream infection, overwhelming infection. It is typically caused by bacterial infections, but it can be caused by other things like fungi. Even viruses and protozoans can, can give you a sepsis-like picture. Okay. And the key thing to know about this is that we typically, and this, this dates back over 100 years, most people, if you interview them in the hospital, they think that the problem with sepsis is not the invading pathogen that is causing problems. It's your body's response to it. So we saw this with like the Ebola outbreak. That during Ebola, you might have seen some headlines. It's not the Ebola virus. It's your body's response. It's the immune system that's causing the problems. Um, if we could only just so tamp, tamp down the immune system and make it better. Hmm. So that's an underlying theme behind all this. But septic patients are often, they have real low blood pressures. And that's one of the hallmarks of it. So your blood pressure, do you know, do you know what it normally is? My, I actually have hypertension, so normally it's a little bit elevated. But when it's controlled, it's probably 105 over 70 or something right. like that. Yeah, so normal is, so systolic blood pressure, 100 millimeters <laughs> mercury it would be normal or above. And once below that, that can be a clue that someone's septic. So when we see people in the ER, they oftentimes will have real low blood pressure. So... You know, I've, I've been really interested in this topic. Um, I, I've been really skeptical of the idea that the problem with sepsis is our, immune, our own immune system. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to me from an evolutionary point of view that would be so, we'd be so badly designed. But maybe we are. You know, we're kind of badly designed in other ways. That's true. To give us like hernias and, you know, the, our optic nerve is in the wrong place. It causes mm -hmm. retinal detachments. So, you know, posable thumbs. Why don't we have more of them? That kind of yeah, thing, right. right? <laughs> There's all sorts of things in which we seem kind of kind of badly designed. But uh, the, the body's response to sepsis, it seems to me, may not be one of those things. But anyway, so this will be, like I said, we're going to keep this one short, sure. I hope. And because of my interest in sepsis as an emergency doctor and taking care of critically ill patients, I was super excited to see this paper uh, come across my email list. And this is in JAMA, so the Journal of the American Medical Association. And the title of the paper is, it's kind of wonky. It's the effect of an early resuscitation protocol on in-hospital mortality among adults with sepsis and hypotension. Eh, you know, not it's much to one. not much to make of that. But it's a randomized clinical trial. Now we, you know, we again, we scientists, physician scientists, we love the randomized uh, clinical trials or right. randomized control trials because observational trials can be misleading because of selection bias. Other reasons, we're not going to get into that. But the gold standard for evidence is a randomized clinical trial hopefully blinded and that sort of thing. But the idea is that we will, um, in this case, they didn't blind it, but you take people that uh, 
that would potentially be enrolled in the study, and then you randomly allocate the experimental treatment to hopefully about 50% half the group. Um, but the bottom line is what's cool about this paper is that there are very few, almost no papers that have been previously done that really examine the bedrock treatments that we do for sepsis. So again, our sick patients with sepsis, they're febrile, they got a high fever, they got low blood pressure, they got fast heart rate, they got all this stuff. And we try to fix things. That's what we do. If someone has a low blood pressure, we fix them. So that's part of putting the IV in, is we, we actually, we will squeeze down a, a bag of fluid, put it into the, the venous system, and restore blood, you know, circulating blood volume to where we think it's going to be normal, um, and give people a normal blood pressure, hopefully a no normal heart rate too. So patients that I see with sepsis, a lot of times their heart rates will be real fast. But like I said, no one has ever studied what happens if you have a septic patient and you don't give them fluids. We just never do that because we give everybody fluids. It's standard of care. And you couldn't even do a test in the United States right now where we, where we uh, tried to do that, ask that question. Is giving fluids good or bad? And so this is an example of doing that outside of the U.S.? Yeah, so it's not so much that you know colonial overlords went to a place, a developing nation, and took advantage of a vulnerable population to do a trial that they couldn't do here. Although maybe some people could argue that that's what happened here. Yeah, I suppose. But but they had the best of intentions. Everybody believes that what we do here is great. Right. And we think that by by instituting our standard of care in other places, we're doing a good thing. But we don't really know. So the, this study, they looked at adults in Zambia. So Zambia is a Central African country. It is... Actually, my geography is not great. Well, <laughs> I, know it's, I, know it's, I know it's landlocked. And I think it's near the Central African Republic. Uh, there's lots of HIV. It is uh, further east. Or well, I guess it's straight. It's like smack dab in the middle. But yeah. it has several parts. Yeah, so it it's borders a bunch quiet, of countries. Actually. It borders... Uh, Zimbabwe. <clears throat> DRC. Yep. DRC. It's northern border. And Angola. Angola. Mozambique. And Tanzania. So there you go. And That's where it is. Looks like maybe Malawi. it touches it touches Namibia. No, no, no. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a little finger. There's a little finger of Namibia. Namibia that sticks in <laughs> I never there. noticed that. That's so, cool. Yeah. Wow. It's really, it really is straight in the middle. <laughs> so that's where they did this. Of course, in Zambia, they don't have. United States style care. They don't have intensive care units and they don't have ba even bag of fluids is actually a relatively expensive intervention and they don't have them. So in that way they're kind of like Puerto Rico right now. Ooh. They apparently they ran out of IV fluids. Yikes. And also the uh, the hospital another tragedy the hospital uh, in Las Vegas that took all the trauma victims. So they very quickly ran out of um, oh, wow. IV yeah. fluids. Yeah. So this is a resource poor country. They don't do care the way that we do and the investigators wondered well what would happen if we took these critically ill adults and we treated them the same way that we treat them here and they managed to enroll with a, with a local partner they managed to enroll 212 adults that were septic these are people that were in, that had an infection and they had at least um, two or more uh, criteria of what's called systemic inflammatory response syndrome don't need to get into that but it involves things like uh, low blood pressure low uh, mean arter arterial pressure, um, et cetera. Other evidence of a severe infection. Are those always involved in septic infections? Or are this, this, the, the, the low blood pressure, the high heart rate? Is that, so low, low blood pressure really is one of the hallmarks okay. of sepsis. 
And when I, when I went through my training, we were told that the problem of sepsis really is that people aren't getting enough blood flow and oxygen to their body. Huh. And it causes all the, all the organs to fail. Interesting. So if you think that, then it makes sense to actually increase oxygen and fluid delivery to all the parts of the body. So we can do that by increasing the blood pressure. We can do that by giving people fluids. So we think. So we think, right? <laughs> this, is, this is what we think. So bottom line here, and then again... They did what they called an early resuscitation protocol for sepsis. This is what we do in our hospital. We have a protocol just like this. And we try to recognize sepsis early. We try to intervene early so that we can save lives. And we do all this stuff in, in, a, in a bundled care manner. So we, ha- we, we bundle um, maximizing uh, you know, or optimizing intravascular volume by giving people fluids. We try to optimize blood pressure by doing that and by giving vasopressors. These are powerful medications that cause the blood vessels to kind of squeeze down. Mm-hmm. Most of them make your heart beat faster, some of them, and make your blood pressure quote-unquote normal. And in this case, they actually also, you can provide oxygen sometimes and provide blood. And again, the bottom line is we're trying to actually increase the oxygen delivery to the, to the, to the um, various parts of your body, your organs that would otherwise be failing. I don't know if you've ever seen a patient with sepsis. No, I have not. Well, when patients are really sick, you can kind of get the sense that they're not they're, they're not getting Sometimes, blood and oxygen yeah. to their to their body. The brain's not working. They're mm-hmm. a little bit out of it. Um, their skin is mottled and kind of blue. Oh right, yeah. So they, yeah, they look sick. So really, sepsis is a doorway diagnosis for some people, mm-hmm. and they're they're pretty sick. So they identified these folks, and then they um, did an intervention. And the intervention was this early resuscitation protocol. So they gave about half of them, a one-to-one ratio. So 107 got fluids plus monitoring their pressure, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, and vasopressors to make their arterial blood blood pressure above 65 millimeters mercury. So that they tried to make them more normal. Then if their hemoglobin level was low, they were anemic, they gave them blood transfusions. Or they gave them usual care. And then usual care is just whatever they happen to be doing on an ordinary basis in Zambia. But presumably they weren't measuring these things as carefully and they weren't targeting them to get them back to normal. They, were, they, didn't, get, they didn't get the fluids the way that um, the treatment group did. So yeah, kind of crazy. Um, and, and it's neat that they were able to do this. I was, I was excited as soon as I saw that, this paper. Yeah, because you wouldn't be able to do this really anywhere else. Because if you're doing it here, where we do have a, this standard of care, mm-hmm. whether it's good or bad, right. if you, if you uh, restrict that from some people, then that's not ethical. Right. So despite the fact <laughs> that no evidence supports giving fluids for patients with sepsis, or very little does, uh, it would not go through an ethics board or be approved by the IRB right. here at UMI. Oh, yeah. Never. Because we believe in our hearts that yeah. giving the fluids is good for us. So here, you're not taking something away from people who already have it. You're yeah. giving something extra. So this is really one of the only situations where you could do this. Exactly. So that's what makes it so neat. Uh, now, this study wasn't blinded. So they knew which patients were getting the intervention and which weren't. Like the best kinds of trials, you give them a placebo pill. It looks right. just like the intervention pill, the experimental treatment. And you, you, the patients don't know the difference. The, the, the care team doesn't know the difference. And even the people analyzing the data don't know the difference until it's all unblinded. Right. Um, they didn't do that here because it's pretty obvious when you're giving people yeah. a bag of fluid. Right? You, and it's not like you could give someone a placebo fluid. There's no placebo fluid yeah. that I'm aware of. Right, because you're still going to be giving some form of fluid. Yeah, exactly. 
So I will just kind of cut to the chase. So the authors predicted that giving the United States or, or developing world, developed world care, including this, this bundled or early, um, the early resuscitation protocol, they hypothesized that these patients were going to do better. Because who wouldn't? Why wouldn't they want to get right. the developed care, you know, et cetera? What they found, though, was that the patients who got this, um, the protocol group, uh, they actually died more often. So that's the bottom line. That's crazy. Yeah. In, I mean, in hospital mortality. It was, it was significantly worse in the patients who received uh, the treatment, um, which is kind of remarkable. I wouldn't have been surprised if maybe there was no difference in mortality here. Yeah. But the fact that you actually have a complete opposite effect from what was predicted is, is pretty interesting to me. Yeah, so I'll just You're read this to you. doing worse. <laughs> the primary outcome of in-hospital mortality incur- occurred in 51 of 106 patients, about, so it was 48%, in the sepsis protocol group. So almost half of the patients that were treated the way that we do it died, compared wow. to 34 of 103 patients in the usual care group. So that's about 33%. So that difference between 48 and 33% um, <laughs> was 15.1%. And that, that uh, translates to an increased relative risk of getting the extra fluids and, and, and the hemoglobin, et cetera, um, of 1.46. So you were about 1.46 times more likely to die if wow. you got the kind of care that's exactly or pretty close to what we do in our hospital yeah. here in the biggest city in New Mexico. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty insane. So already we're thinking, well, what's, what's up with this study? Um, do they do something wrong? Um, I wonder what, how big of an impact this is going to have. Yeah. When did this come out? Very recently? This came out on September, at least, it crossed, yeah, published online September 27th, 2017. Oh, okay. So, so we, super recent. We actually do have a journal club in which we discuss these kinds of findings uh, in our residency program. And I, I hope that oh, we cool. will talk about this one because it's kind of neat. Um, but already, you can, you can, you can, I can hear people explaining these results away. Yeah, I'm wondering what what are people gonna say? Yeah, so oh, even though it's it wrong or it's the gold standard, this random randomized control trial, but they they'll they'll, they'll find some reasons to, to explain it away. So they'll say it, it's Zambia, it's not the United States, and that's true. If you do a study, you want it to be representative of the population in sure, which you're going to do something. So Zambia, not the United States. A lot of these patients actually had HIV. I want to say even the majority of them did. Yeah, most okay. of whom were positive for HIV. It was a resource-limited setting, unlike what we have here. A lot of people are malnourished, sure. so they were relatively skinny. I feel like maybe the HIV-positive difference could be a big one. It's a biggie. Yeah. But I will tell you that if you're HIV-positive and you present to our hospital today, looking for all the rural, like one of these Zambian patients, mm-hmm. you're going to get our usual care, which is to give the kind of the aggressive fluids and the vasopressors and try to maximize this fluid delivery and oxygen um, delivery to tissues. So you're going to get what these people got, even if you are like these folks. Right. So the other piece is that, and this is kind of getting into the weeds of it, but the patients who didn't respond, their blood pressures didn't go up with the IV fluids, they gave them a vasopressor. So vasopressor, again, increases the pressure in your vasos, in your veins. And it does this a lot of times by actually increasing, by decreasing the diameter of the arterioles and, uh, and the, the big blood vessels. So that cranks up the pressure. And we think of this as being good. But they used a relatively older vasopressor, something called dopamine. And we rarely use dopamine anymore. 
We mostly... I did not know dopamine was a vasopressor. Dopamine is a vasopressor. Yeah. yeah, it is. Hmm. Of course, it's also a neurotransmitter, right? Yeah. And we yeah. think about it doing all these, you know, being having reward pathways in the brain, doing all kinds of cool things in alliance with uh, serotonin. It's responsible for movement and movement disorders, and it, it's one of the receptors are targeted in things like, um, what am I thinking of? <laughs> Uh, Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Does it make you feel happy if you take it? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Maybe in certain doses. I don't know. I don't think it's been tested. Yeah. It's funny how your brain can compartmentalize these things. You know, it's the same word, same chemical. Right. And we think, oh, this is a vasopressor, but I really have put it into a different bucket than thinking about its yeah. normal role in the brain. Yeah. I'm. I'm yeah. thinking about what happens when I eat a cookie. Dopamine. <laughs> yeah. Or we'll, we'll go dopamine. for a run or something. Exactly. So we don't use dopamine so much for blood pressure, um, the vasopressor role anymore, in, in, at least in our hospital. And that's because using norepinephrine, mm. which is trade-named levofed, or noradrenaline is what they call it in the UK, across mm-hmm. the pond, same thing. So this is a um, catecholamine vasopressor that seems to actually have higher survival than using dopamine. So we don't use dopamine mm. so much anymore. And so some people will explain, well, these, these, these were, this is a group who got dopamine, and dopamine is the reason why they did poorly. So maybe that's the answer. And in fact, we don't really know sure. because they did this as part of a bundle. And that's right. the problem when you're doing more than one thing at once. Yeah. So I can imagine that people are going to say, well, this is, will not affect my practice because we're not in Zambia. Our patients are not poor, malnourished, or resource limited. Our patients don't have HIV. And we're not going to use dopamine. So a bunch of reasons to kind of maybe be skeptical of these sure. results or have them, their ability to translate across new continents. Yeah, that makes sense. But there's a really big but here. Yeah, for sure. And the but is that this is a really intriguing result. So if you look at randomized controlled trials that look at fluids versus no fluids, there's really only two. Both of them have been done in Africa. This is one of them. And it shows that you increase the mortality. Not only do you not make them better, you make them worse. We don't have any evidence for our patients that giving, people, giving them this degree of fluids makes them better. So what's that other randomized control trial you ask? Well, let me tell you, Kate. I do want to know. <laughs> you, you looked like you wanted to know. <laughs> like I said, this is called, um, it's called the FEAST trial or the FEAST trial group. And this was done in several different countries in Africa, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, um, published in the New England Journal in 2011. This is the only other study. And this looked at kids, so not adults, like the JAMA study we just talked about. And this was just had the same result. They tried to, they gave these very sick kids fluids, um, a variety of different ones, um, and the ones who got saline solution or any other fluid did worse than the ones who didn't receive it. Hmm. So this is really intriguing. So these are sick kids who presented with what looked like severe dehydration, evidence that, that skin modeling and changes of perfusion that make them really look like um, they're, they're in shock. And, and the mainstay of treatment for shock is to give fluids. There are patients right now in the hospital getting this. And the question is, are we doing the right thing? So this, these are really the only pieces of evidence that we have. I hope that we're going to do a study in, in the U.S. in which we really restrict the saline and the fluids, both for kids and for adults. I don't know if it's going to happen. Because people are so wed to this idea. They're so like in, in bed and in love with this that they just can't give it up. What do you think we would have to find in some other study for people to maybe change the way they think about this protocol? 
they'll have to do something called permissive hypotension. So you, you permit the, the body to stay abnormal, to keep the blood pressure low. Okay. And that's really the evolutionary <clears throat> logic here is that when we try to normalize things, we make them worse, at least in this study right. and others. So that raises the question to me, the underlying idea that the body is going haywire and that we doctors can do better than nature. I think that this, these results call that into question. Maybe there's some sure. logic to this critical illness that, that actually makes people do okay with a low blood pressure. I mean, sepsis is a blood infection, right? It is a blood infection. So maybe, hmm, no, I don't know. I can I'm speculate. Just, I'm just wondering if maybe having low blood pressure maybe makes it less likely to spread or, I mean, I guess it's systemic at this point anyway, so. Yeah. Hmm. So I would, I, my, as an, as an evolutionary <clears throat> physician, as well as an emergency and critical care physician, I would hypothesize that maybe the low blood pressure is not just, it's not just maladaptive. It may actually be adaptive. It may actually be beneficial. Sure. And that these studies in which we try to improve the blood pressure, we are making people, at least under certain circumstances, we're making it worse. So that's, that's unmasking the adaptiveness of the low blood pressure. Right. Maybe. Will it, do, you, do you imagine that such a study would get published or get funded? Um, I don't think that we're there yet. I think it's mm -hmm. gonna, the bar is quite high to make these kinds of arguments. Um, but it is completely in line with the idea that having a low blood pressure by itself is not going to kill you. And there is some, some other intriguing evidence that kind of go along, along these lines. And that's sort of a separate issue from the fluid question, too. Oh, yeah. So there's, At least with this one, this did not include the, the vasopressor. It did not, as far as the I know. second one. Yeah. So there's one other little piece of evidence. This is a study published in Critical Care Medicine, uh, 2017, so very, very recent. They looked at fever in the emergency department to predict survival. So again, uh -huh. this, the, this is a classic evolutionary medicine idea that fever is good for us and actually helps us protect us from these bad infections and, and helps the immune system battle off bacteria. So in this study, it was observational. But they looked at people and they bucketed them in different kinds of temperature groups. And it turns out the people that had the very highest temperature, they had the best survival. Wow. And not only that, the people that had the lowest blood pressure and the fastest heart rate as a supposed marker of severe sepsis, they weren't any more likely to die. So that's another key that maybe, maybe these blood pressure changes are not maladaptive. Maybe they're, in fact, adaptive. And like you said, if you have a bloodstream infection, maybe it's not a good idea to pump bacteria at high, high pressure throughout your right. entire body. Yeah. Maybe the low pressure actually helps trap bacteria, helps clear them from the bloodstream, does other potentially good things, or keeps, keeps the infection from spilling out of wherever it's coming from. So that, that's, my, that's my thinking, is that having a relatively low blood pressure, it basically works in concert with your immune system and provides for hmm. um, mechanisms of pathogen trapping that happen inside the, uh, the blood vessels. So that, that idea remains uh, very hypothetical sure. and untested. High heart rate too. That's interesting. So it's low pressure, but you're pumping blood through at a higher rate. Yeah. So if you can just imagine, imagine if you had a pump that's going, that's produced, that's, that's kind of pumping a, um, at a, uh, equivalent effort, and then if, if, you, if all of a sudden then you just open up all the pipes, then more blood's going to come, more blood or more water or whatever's going to mm -hmm. go through that pump. The pump's actually going to speed up, um, okay. and more volume's going to go through. So that's what they've actually found when they've looked at this, is that if you look at the tissue in any, any given part of the body, 
the actual oxygen and blood delivery is not impaired. Um, the pressure is lower, but the oxygen and blood delivery is not, not a problem when they, when they test this. So that, that really argues against this underlying logic of sepsis. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just wonder if maybe more blood going through, uh, more volume, maybe it's, it's exposing that blood to more of your own body's natural ability to potentially clear the infection. Maybe. Yeah, no one besides yeah. us, as far as I know, is asking that question. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're the first. All right. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe not the first, but... but uh, At but, least the first maybe to be recorded. <laughs> first to be recorded on a, pod, on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, I think with that, um, there's more to say about this. And, man, I can, I can really nerd out on, on fluids. <laughs> and it may not be everybody's, like, you know, favorite topic. But we really... This is one of these areas where if we think about what we're doing as physicians and where we can learn from some evolutionary principles and when we can think about how adaptation norms of reaction and borrow from some from some of these 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 ideas from from uh, ecology and and basic biology that we'd be better off but we don't do that and in fact we, we, we tend to think of the body as a machine and the body's and the machine being broken and that we doctors are just trying to fix things and that paradigm is obviously flawed as flawed in this instance and it really raises more questions than, than it answers. Hmm. So where do we go from here, from these studies? Well, like I said, I, I'm hoping that we're going to have a study in a developed country in which they at least attempt to look at these questions, mm-hmm. look at some kind of corner cases um, in which you might be able to withhold fluids and not violate standard of care. Um, or maybe some people can actually be, with, with, this, with these new evidence, uh, take perhaps even a greater quote-unquote risk mm-hmm. and really restrict fluids for patients with sepsis and see what happens. Sure. I, you know, I personally, at this point, with these data and with others, <clears throat> I think that there's, there's a good case to be made for that. And I'm not going to advocate that if any physician is listening that we change our practice on the basis of one study. That wouldn't be smart. And uh, that wouldn't be... That, you know, there's too many examples of single studies just not being sufficient sure. to even tell us something about the true nature of reality right. that really we, everything needs to be replicated. So we'll, we'll, we'll end on that caveat. That's not enough for us to tell, but th- there is enough in these data and in the feast trial to be at least suspicious uh, that we're doing good when we give lots of fluids and maybe we are drowning in good, good intentions. So more research is needed. More research is needed. <laughs> it's funny how it all always comes back to that, but it's really yeah. real, right? You know, yeah, we're, we're not going to abandon the scientific method. Um, or think there's no other way to do it. If we're going to be doing invasive things to people that are they're almost dying, it should it needs to be studied. Absolutely. Right. So so it's hopefully, a, those studies will happen. Yeah, it's a bit of a trope, but it's also kind of the signature of science. Right? It is. So. Well, great. Well, cool. thank thank you, uh, Kate, for yeah. joining me and, yeah, and having this, for having this me. good conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me on for the first time. All right. So we'll sign off, and hopefully we'll talk about something like this in the future soon. Yes. Yeah. I'm game.